Good morning. So blessed to have you with us this morning, and I want to echo what Jack said a moment ago. If you are a guest this morning, we are honored that you are here. And I want you and our members to know alike that we understand that we are growing at a pretty uh, phenomenal rate. Uh, we have been growing for the last several years, but we have been growing exponentially the last few months. We are aware of that as a staff and as elders, and we want you to know that we have been planning for that. This is not something that is catching us off guard, so to speak. We are making concessions for this. Uh, there will be some temporary parking made uh, beyond our current parking situation. Uh, the construction road, if you know where that's at, will be turned into a temporary parking lot that will give us about 50 more spaces and also make it to where Steve Brown won't get stuck. So that's always a good thing. Um, so we would ask that you know, some of our members you know, park out there, make it easy, easily accessible uh, for our guests to park closer to the building, uh, and also for our handicapped members and those who maybe have trouble uh, getting across the parking lot. Uh, we also want you to know that our plan was to get through the summer, kind of see where we were at. We know that our numbers drop significantly in the summer, as do most churches. Ours didn't drop that much. Uh, in fact, there were only two times this summer that we were under 600, and those two times were above the normal average before we've had this growth. So we are looking at things, and we are thinking that if we can get through the summer, look at the first few weeks of August and maybe into September a little bit, have some ushers, have some temporary seating maybe to, to go in case we do have overflow, and then be ready to go to our two-service format that we have tried out at the drop of a hat. If we need to do that in a, within a week, we can do that. And uh, that's why we tried it out a couple of times at the first of the year. Um, so we are looking at ways in which we can handle the growth. The last thing we want is for somebody to pull into our parking lot and not be able to find a space and leave. The last thing we want is for somebody to find a parking space but come into our church building and not be able to find a seat, and so they leave. We don't want that to happen. Here's where you can help with that. By moving up and moving in. I realize some of you, that cushion has conformed to your seat really well. <laughs> but if you would, please, 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 because someone who comes in, maybe just a touch late, and you know, it's just common that the back seats fill up quicker than the front seats. If somebody comes in just a tad bit late, they're not going to want to be escorted all the way to the front here. That's embarrassing, and unfortunately, they may not want to come back and visit with us. So we want to make it as easily as accessible as possible for our guests. So if you would move up and move in, we would greatly, greatly appreciate that. And if you have any questions about this, you can see me or, or Jake and Blake or Tom or one of the elders, and we'd love to, to visit with you more about it. But thank you for your courtesy and for accommodating our guests. And for our guests to be here, we are glad that you're here. And we want you to know that we are making concessions for the growth. It's a good thing. It's a good problem to have. But we realize that it is, uh, can be an issue if we don't do something. Yeah, you look at that title and you better have read the outline, right? <laughs> That'll catch you off guard, won't it? There are some subjects, there are certain topics that you as a Christian need to be more liberal at. And giving is one of them. You need to be more liberal, I think all of us as Christians need to be more liberal when it comes to our giving. You know, it reminds me of the gentleman who, uh, who was talking to himself and he was saying to himself, you know, if I just had a little more money. If I just had a little more money, I would give it to God. But as it stands, I have barely have enough money to support my family. And he said, you know, if I just had a little more time, I would give that time to God. But as it stands, 
I barely have time to get everything done today. I have to work and work and work just to make enough money to support my family. I just don't have any time. I wish I had a talent or a skill, but as it stands, I'm not good at anything. And God heard the man, and God felt pity for the man. And God gave the man more money, more time, and more talents. And God waited, and he waited, and he waited, and the man did nothing. And so God took it all back. And sometime later, the man said, if I just had some of that money back, I would give it to God. If I just had a little bit more of that time back, I would give it to God. If I just had some of that talent back, I would give it to God. And God said, oh, hush. And the man said, I'm not sure I believe in God anymore. Unfortunately, some people do that with their giving. They start with excuses. They're more than willing to take things from God. They're more than willing to be blessed by God, but to turn around and bless others and to give back, not so much. Kind of reminds me of the circus ringmaster who had a standing bet with anyone who could squeeze a drop out of a lemon. He would give them $1,000. So he's, he's in front of the, the crowd, and he's, he's taking this lemon, and he's squeezing it, and he's squashing it until there's nothing left of it. And if anyone can come up after him and squeeze one drop out of that lemon, he'd give them $1,000. Cowboys tried, bodybuilders tried, all kinds of people tried. No one could succeed until one time he's performing this trick, and there is a gentleman in the audience that's about 100 pounds. He's wiry. He's got on you know, black rim glasses, scrawny, nerdy looking. He says, I can do it. And everybody laughs. Everybody in the audience laughs. And so the ringmaster calls him up, and the ringmaster takes that lemon, and he squashes it, and he squishes it, and he fills a glass full of lemon juice, and then he hands it to this nerdy, scrawny gentleman who then proceeds to take it and squeeze three more drops out of it. And the fans who are laughing are now celebrating, and they're cheering, and the ringmaster hands him the $1,000, and he said, how did you do that? So many people have tried. How were you able to do it? And the man says, I do this kind of thing all the time. I'm the church treasurer. <laughs> I want you to understand that, that being a spiritual miser is not, is not what God is looking for. Cheapness is not a spiritual gift, okay? When it comes to giving, we all need to be more liberal. Someone once said there are three types of givers. There's the flint there's the sponge, and there's the honeycomb. The flinch, you got to hammer it and beat it to death, and then you only get sparks and maybe a few chips. With the uh, sponge, you've got to apply pressure, and the more pressure you apply, the more you're able to squeeze out of it, but not so with the honeycomb. With the honeycomb, it is just automatically dripping with sweetness. It's different because it overflows. No squeezing, no beating. We are called to be good stewards of what God has blessed us with. However, all too often we cling to our money and we justify it in the name of stewardship, don't we? God is not impressed with cheapness. Stewardship is not about taking what God has blessed you with and then rationing out a smidge here and there and keeping the rest for yourself. Don't give from the top of your purse or from the top of your wallet and call it a sacrifice. Never offer God that which was not a sacrifice for you. Instead, be a honeycomb. Overflow with sweetness and goodness. This is one area 
where we could all, I think, afford to be a little more liberal. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is trying to motivate the church in Corinth to carry out what they started. You see, there was this this drive, if you will, this pledge to raise some money for the church in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church, as you know, was the mother church. And so Paul is gathering a contribution from other churches, Gentile churches, to contribute to the health of the Jerusalem church. Now, we know the Corinthian church had a lot of problems, and apparently following through on their giving was one of them. And so Paul is encouraging them to continue to to finish what they start. He's basically saying, it's time to put your money where your mouth is. It's time to follow through. It's time to finish what you started. It's time for action. Talk is cheap, so let's start giving. Keep this in mind as we read what Paul writes beginning in verse 1. He says, now brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Then at a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also the desire to do it. But now, finish doing it. Also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality at this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. I wonder if there was moaning and groaning as this letter was read out loud the first time. I wonder if among the Corinthians they were saying, oh, here we go again, Paul's asking for money. Seems like Paul's always asking for money. Why do we need to support another church if they can't support themselves? And that's their problem, right? Giving is not a popular subject, at least not among some. And one reason is because we are natural-born clutchers, aren't we? I mean, it's just instinctive among us. It is a reflexive response. I mean, you look at your hands. When you were an infant, you were born with your hands clutched. When you were a small, small child, if anyone put their finger close to your hand, you would grab it and you would hang on. You got to be a toddler, and guess what you did? You clutched those toys. So much so that if another toddler came up, you immediately said, no, mine, and you clutched them tighter. You grew up and you got into junior high and maybe you clutched the handles 
on your bike. You got into high school and maybe you clutched the hand of a boyfriend or girlfriend. You graduated from high school and you clutched that diploma. You got into adulthood and you graduated from college and you clutched that diploma and then you clutched the, the bottom rung of the ladder. And then you clutch the next rung as you tried to climb that ladder of success. We are natural born clutchers. One day you'll finally retire and you'll clutch golf clubs or a fishing rod or something like that. Maybe one day you'll clutch the side of the bed before you pass away. We just naturally clutch. That's our reflexive response. And it doesn't matter who or what tries to convince us to relax our grip. It's just so hard. It's so hard to relax. And money becomes a source of security for us. It's something that we clutch and therefore is going to be hard for us to let go of. We clutch it so tight. It's like, it's like breathing. It just We have to have it. We have to clutch it. It's natural for us. And so when we have a discussion about money or when somebody talks about giving some of our security away, well, that becomes difficult. But I don't like how we often focus on the duty and the obligation of it. I do think that has some merit, but I don't like the phrase, we are commanded to lay by in store, because that's putting the emphasis on the wrong thing. And I wish we'd stop putting the emphasis on the duty or the command, because if you only give out of duty or obligation, then you are seriously lacking in your giving. 1 Corinthians 13.3 says, And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. You know, folks, God doesn't need your money. So what's giving about? God doesn't need your money. It's not about the money for God. So we don't start with money. We don't start with money. We don't start with the obligation. We don't start with the duty. You know what we start with? We start the same place that Paul started. We start with grace. I mean, notice. Did you notice how Paul started with grace? He didn't start with how much money still needed to be collected, did he? As far as we know, he didn't have a pie chart saying, this is how much Macedonia gave. This is how much you're going to need to give in order to make up the difference. He didn't have one of those thermometers, you know what I'm talking about, for fundraising. that You know, you use red to fill it up. He didn't have one of those to say, we need to get here, this is our goal. He didn't ever talk about the amount. He started with grace. And that's natural and obvious, isn't it? The gospel is about grace, so giving should be about grace as well. He appeals to the motive for giving. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. It just makes sense because everything starts with God and with grace, and so certainly giving would as well. Christians give because God has given, and God continues to give, and so we give as well. The free gift of grace given by God through Jesus Christ should be all the motivation we need in our giving. Our giving is a gospel response because the gospel is all about the generosity of God living out the gospel is about being generous to the church to others which means that we're talking about more than money we're talking about more than money here notice what Paul says about the Macedonians in their giving he says they gave with the right motive that in a great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality 
They rejoiced in their giving, it says. They rejoiced in spite of, did you notice, their deep poverty? They weren't just poor, they were deeply poor. And they rejoiced because they knew that it was helping someone else and that they were pleasing God in the process. The fact that they gave in spite of their poverty shows that they trusted in God, that he was going to make up the difference, that he was going to meet their needs. They also gave sacrificially. It says, for I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. But here's the key. Here's the key in all of it. Underline it, circle it, whatever you need to do. But verse 5 is the key. But they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. That's it. That's the crux of all of it. You give yourself to God first. Because if you give yourself to God first, then giving is not nearly as big of a problem. Those who have trouble turning loose of their money, those who are hindered in their giving, have not given themselves first to God. Because it's not the money. God doesn't need your money, like we said. Money's just paper, it's just coins, it's just plastic nowadays, right? It's not the money. It's the heart. It's the attitude. It's the, the way in which we give. The Macedonians were glad to be able to give because they knew that their giving was pleasing to God. And so they gave sacrificially, knowing that they were giving to God, they were trusting in God to take care of their basic needs. So you skip over now to chapter 9. And in chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, where Jack read from a moment ago, it says this. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, there's that grace again, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. So Paul mentions grace giving. And here's what he is saying in a nutshell. He's saying that God's going to take care of you. God's going to take care of you. You can give liberally. How will I not take care of you? How would you ever not be able to trust me? I gave everything I had. I gave my only begotten son to die a cruel death on a cruel cross. What makes you think that I'm not going to provide for you clothing, some food to eat? You can trust God when you are liberal with your giving. And so the question becomes, how much do you trust God? Do you trust him to meet your daily needs? Do you trust him to take care of you? And when it gets right down to it, how much do you hold on to? Because nothing is yours anyway, right? Sometimes we have a hard time wrapping our minds around that. But nothing you have is yours to begin with. All of it's a blessing. You say, well, I worked hard for this. Yeah, but God gave you the ability to work even. You don't own anything. You are a steward of everything. You're not a steward. Excuse me. You're not an owner. You're a steward. And it's only by the grace of God that you have anything. And therefore, your giving should be an act of grace. I want you to notice Paul's focus when it came to the Corinthians giving. And notice that he's not trying to incite a competition here. He's not trying to say, hey, the Macedonians over here gave this much. You need to give a little bit more if you want to beat them. He's not trying to encourage competition here. 
In fact, he never mentions the actual amount that the Macedonians gave, did he? Instead, he focuses somewhere else, doesn't he? He focuses on attitude. He focuses on the spirit behind the giving. The first question that we ask when it comes to our giving is what? Well, how much? I mean, that's always our first question. Paul doesn't focus there. In fact, you can't do a sermon on giving without looking at Mark chapter 12, can you? Go over to Mark chapter 12. This tells us a little bit about giving and the amount. So here we have this poor widow woman who gives the two mites, and it says, And he, Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury, and he began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury, and many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Now the first thing I think you notice there that's a little bit scary is that Jesus observed their giving. Do you think he observes our giving today? I don't see why not. So he observes their giving. And what's he observing? What's he looking for? Is he looking for how much each person put in? Doesn't seem to be the case. Because there were many people who came in and brought a, and brought a whole lot more money to put in to the temple treasury than this woman. I mean, compared to all the others who dropped their money in, this woman's contribution was minuscule. And yet Jesus tells his disciples, that's your example. That's the one you look to. Why? Because it wasn't so much the amount, it was the spirit in which she gave. We always ask how much. Jesus is saying how much also, but not how much you give, rather how much you're going to keep. Because why, while these, these Pharisees and these leaders came and dropped in large sums of money, they still had large sums of money left. Their giving didn't affect them a whole lot, if any. This woman gave all that she had. All of it. And then that raises a question, well, I mean, was that really wise? Was that really prudent? I mean, is, is the teaching here that we should drop our entire paycheck in the collection plate when it comes around, is that the only way that we can be pleasing to God? No. No. You're missing the point if that's where you're going. The point is that this woman trusted enough in God her attitude was one of faith that God's going to take care of me. I'm going to give and I'm going to give sacrificially. Because in the Lord's eyes, her tiny coins were more precious than diamonds. They were worth a cent to the common man. But for Jesus, they were worth more than the most expensive diamonds in the world. It wasn't the amount she gave, but the attitude. She gave humbly, she gave cheerfully, and she gave out of love. In other words, she gave herself. We tend to measure our contribution by the dollar amount that we give. But God measures our contribution by the condition of the heart from which it came. It's easy for us to look at this story and think, well, what a silly woman that she would give everything she had. Because we're naturally clutchers. That's how we think. And listen, a case can be made to say, well, maybe if she had just kept one coin and gave the other, that would have been okay. Sure. But the point of the story is, it's not how much you give, it's how much you keep. It's about your attitude, it's about your discipline, it's about, do I trust God to take care of me? 
Do I completely and totally rely on Him? The amount of the gift never matters as much as the cost to the giver because anytime you read about giving in the Bible, whether it be of money or something else, you see over and over again a theme of what? Of sacrifice. It always costs the giver something. Always. God judges us not by what we give, but by what we keep, I think. The wealthy gave out of their wealth, as we said. Even though they had large sums of money to give, they also kept large sums of money. They had given out of their abundance. They weren't going to miss the money that they gave away. They had plenty more to sustain them. The widow gave everything that she had, and therefore she had only her faith to sustain her. Her trust had to be in God. The contributions of the others cost them nothing, but the contribution of this widow cost her everything. If you give what you do not need, is it really giving? Jesus commended the woman not for giving so much away, but for keeping so little. Because in Jesus' view, the amount we keep indicates more than the amount that we give. I think one undeniable fact that stands out over and over again in Scripture, and really the point of this story And the widow giving her two mites is that it's important to understand the meaning of sacrifice. Not how much did you give, but did you give all that you could, right? Did you give out of your abundance or did you sacrifice? Is your faith in God or in money? Is money a tool or is it a God? How we answer these questions will directly affect our giving. Because, folks, stewardship is not a money issue. Stewardship is a lordship issue. Who has your heart? That's what it all boils down to. Waylon Pendergast got drunk one night and was walking home and committed a spur-of-the-moment robbery. A very inebriated Waylon Pendergast broke into an upstairs bedroom of a home and filled a suitcase full of valuable possessions and set the house on fire to cover his tracks. And as he set out walking home, he turned the corner to go down his street where he lived, and he noticed fire engines in front of his house. And then it hit him. He had broken into his own house. He had stolen his own stuff and set his own house on fire. True story. When he sobered up, reporters asked him, why did you do it? And all he could respond with is, I never knew I had so many valuable possessions. (laughs) You know, we take so many things for granted because we have so many things to take for granted, don't we? We have been blessed beyond measure, and so we tend to take some things for granted. Like it or not, many have ascribed divine attributes to money and the things that money can buy. We find our self-worth in our net worth. And we look to money to provide us security, significance, and self-worth. We look to our money to provide us with satisfaction. We look to our money to provide us things that God wants to provide for us. We look to fill the hole in our heart with money and the things that money can buy when that hole in your heart is a God-shaped hole. And so we turn to money and we treat it like deity, when all the while God is sitting over here saying, I want to provide that for you. 
You know, we talk about our blessings and we talk about having the blessing of money and the things that money can buy. But understand, that blessing may also be a test. You may be blessed with these things to see how you're going to handle them, right? You know, we call this cirrhosis of the giver. You've probably heard of this malady. It's an acute condition that renders the patient's hands immobile when he or she is called to move them in the direction of their wallet or purse. This strange malady is clinically unobservable in certain surroundings like golf courses, casinos, or restaurants. And the symptoms include sudden paralysis or an inability to reach for your wallet when the offering plate gets passed, sweating and internal feelings of anger when the preacher starts talking about money, nausea and lightheadedness when considering turning loose of a portion of your money. Cirrhosis of the giver. Do you suffer from it? Think of an example like this. I know many of you probably haven't done this, but play along. Let's say your, your son or daughter turns 16 and you buy them a brand new Corvette. Brand new, wrapped in a bow and everything. Sounds nice, right? But you walk outside with your son or daughter. They're blindfolded. You remove the blindfold and there it is, sitting in the driveway, a brand new Corvette. And they're ecstatic. They're jumping up and down. They're kissing you all over, hugging your neck. You give them the keys and they get in and they drive off. And let's say a little time later, your car is in the shop. And so you go to your son or your daughter and you say, hey, just for today, I'm going to have to take the Corvette. I'm going to have to drive your car because mine's in the shop. And what if they react like, what are you talking about? You can't drive my car. Why, why can't you borrow somebody else's car? This is my car. How would you respond besides slapping them in the face? <laughs> that would anger you, wouldn't you? At least frustrate you. They did nothing to earn that car. That car was completely and totally a gift. It was only by the grace of you that they got that car. They did nothing to earn it. They did nothing in any way to gain it. You just gave it to them. And now they're claiming that it's their own and won't even let you drive it for a day. You see what we're getting at here? Is money a tool or is it God for you? Imagine reciting a prayer like this. Two things I asked of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. That I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of God. Two things. Only two things that this man asks. Keep deception and lies from me and help me live paycheck to paycheck. Don't give me a retirement plan. Don't give me a pension. Don't give me extra money because I might take that and become and make it an idol for me and refuse you. And I don't want to do that. So help me to live daily on only what I need. Who in the world would pray that prayer? In fact, if you didn't pray that prayer and God just blessed you with that, you would question the character of God. We don't want our daily bread. We want enough that we don't have to worry about our daily bread. And yet this gentleman puts the emphasis, has his priorities in the right spot. Two things. Keep deception and lies from me and give me neither poverty nor riches. Help me stay right there to where I'm not having to scrape and claw 
But at the same time, I'm not so full of wealth that I turn my back on you. We have so much that we often forgive. We often forget God. We have so much that we often place him on the back burner. If you are a clutcher, I dare you to pray this prayer. If you are someone who is an owner and not a steward, you need to pray this prayer. I dare all of you to pray this prayer. I don't think it's wrong to have a 401k. Don't get me wrong. That's not what I'm saying. But I'll tell you what is wrong. To have money and the things that can buy occupy an unhealthy place in your life. If you're a clutcher, if you're an owner, if you're someone who is suffering with cirrhosis of the giver, you need to pray this prayer. You need to remove anything that's sitting on the throne of your heart and place God there, including, including money. That needs to be removed. And God needs to be placed firmly on his throne. You know, I, I read the story the other day, my good friend Steve Higginbotham, if you follow him, preachinghelp.org, it's a great site. But he puts these little devotionals on there, and he, he was talking about a little girl in his church that she had two coins she was so eager to drop in the collection plate. And she was clutching them tight, waiting for that collection plate to come by. She didn't want anybody getting those coins before they got dropped in the plate. And so the collection plate comes by, and as it sits right there in her mother's lap, she reaches over and she unfolds her hand to drop those coins in, and they won't come out. I guess she was holding them so tight they stuck to her palm. And so she had to pry them from her hands, and they dropped in the collection plate. And then she handed the plate to the usher and she said, thank you. We don't typically say thank you when we give, right? In fact, I don't know about you, but I I get upset a little bit. I get a little bit frustrated when I go to a convenience store somewhere and I give them money and everything and I say thank you and they don't say thank you back. I shouldn't have said thank you anyway. I'm the patron here. You should be thanking me, right? Why do we thank people for our giving? I don't know, but we should be thanking God for the opportunity to give. It seems so abnormal. It seems so out of of step with our world, but we need to be thanking God for just the opportunity to give. You know, our giving is really good here at Oldham Lake. You may be thinking, well, why is Chris preaching on giving when we are giving so well? Because that's the time you preach on giving. That's the best time. Thank you for your generosity. But you know what? When the elders of the staff look at you, we're not looking at dollar signs. We're not looking at how much you can contribute. I think this transcends church and this goes into all areas of our lives. Being a cheerful giver is not just about turning loose of the Lord's money in the Lord's church. It's not just about giving of money. It's about giving of our time and our energies, our resources. It's about not letting money occupy an unhealthy unhealthy place in your heart. There are some subjects that as Christians we need to be more liberal. And this is one of them. If we can help you this morning, if you have a need that we can help you with, if you need the prayers and support of this church family, if you're ready to study the Bible with someone and learn what it means to be a disciple, Maybe you've been studying with someone, you're ready to take that next step. You're ready to be baptized. We want to we help you this morning in any way that we can. This is a family, and we want to treat you as family, and family looks out for one another. If you need some help this morning, 
let us know. Come now as we stand and as we sing.